Thank you so much, Peggy, and good morning. Welcome. Uh, I'm Tom Nelson, and uh, welcome. I guess uh, snow started between the two services. After the first service, I, mean, I was like, what happened? Hopefully it's not Snowmageddon, huh? Uh, but welcome to Christ Community and the Leewood campus, and uh, just very, very glad you're here. Uh, and I trust you sense uh, you are welcomed and you sense the love of Christ uh, in our midst. Um, so again, I just want to give you a very warm welcome, and thanks for coming on a kind of a snowy day. So we're delighted you are here. Disappointment is uh, a part of all of our experience as human beings. I think few have better captured the agony of disappointment in life and in people and in circumstances than Herbert Kretzmer's great song. Most of us don't remember him by name unless you're really into music, but you know his lyrics. Made famous by the great and I think the most brilliant musical ever written, Les Miserables. It is Fantine's song of agonizing disappointment in life, I dreamed a dream. I dreamed a dream in times gone by, when hope was high and life was worth living. I dreamed that love would never die. She goes on, I had a dream my life would be so much different than the hell I'm living. So different now from what it seemed. Now life has killed the dream I dreamed. This morning, whether we are younger or older or wherever we are in our journey of faith, all of us have faced life that has killed the dream in us. I'll never forget one of my first great disappointments, and it was as a teenager. Life to me was just about wrestling only. I was expected to win a championship. I expected to win it. But I remember the disappointment of losing that meet. What I've discovered over the years is disappointment, like many pains of the heart, are brutal. But if you're like me, disappointment has one of the longest shelf lives of the soul. All of us face disappointment in life. We experience it, and you may have brought it with you to church this morning. Tucked around your heart is a really hard week at your workplace. Maybe you're an entrepreneur, maybe you're in a business context, and you find yourself with sleepless nights. You've sacrificed so much for your career or your business and you wonder if you can hang on, if the money will last. Your marriage may be bringing you great disappointment. You stood at the altar many years ago with high hopes, high dreams of intimacy and support and goodness. And yet in those agonizing nights, you wonder if life has killed the dream in your heart. You don't feel supported by your spouse. The intimacy you long for is not there. Or maybe you are in a prolonged season of singleness in your life. Life, the circumstances seem to be killing the dream of a family, of a friend, of a warm marriage. Some of you, maybe even this week at school or at work, have felt the stinging disappointment of a loss of a friend that you trusted. And I want to suggest to you that perhaps the, one of the greatest disappointments we face is when we look in the mirror. And that is disappointment with ourselves. 
disappointment in the choices we have made or not made. All of us face life's deep disappointments. And what I've also discovered in those of us who are here this morning in more of the senior season of life, disappointment has a way of hitchhiking a ride into your senior years. Broken relationships, unresolved conflict of your family, regret hangs around you like a fog. I was at Walmart this week, one of the places I hang out. <laughs> That's how exciting I am. And I needed my watch band fixed. So I went up to the counter and there was a dear lady and perhaps more of her season, senior season. And I hear this everywhere, including Walmart. I don't even know this lady. And as we were talking, she said, yeah, the golden years aren't so golden. Life has a way of disappointing us. We all feel it, young and old. But there is a disappointment that if you are a person of faith this morning or you are seeking faith or you have been in the church a long time, we seldom talk about it. Sometimes under hushed tones we mention it. Sometimes in the echoes of our prayers we hear it. And that is disappointment with God. There's something about many of us in our faith journey that what we expect from our faith and what we experience often has a sizable gap that haunts us. And we wonder, don't we? Especially when life disappoints us, when God seems distant, when prayers seem to bounce off the ceiling, and the dreams we long for seems shattered. And for me, when evil seems to be unleashed in the world, I ask the question, and you do too, in the quietness of your heart, God, where are you? God, do you really care? Why don't you intervene in this? And for some of us this morning, the greatest challenge to our faith it's not that kind of dig-in-your-heels, willful disbelief. It is a chronic and corrosive disappointment with God. It sets us adrift. Below the Sunday smiles, perhaps you came to church this morning and you're asking the question, as you look at your circumstances, your life, God, do you really care? Do you really understand what I'm going through? This is the cry of the heart, isn't it? And we are not alone in this. Because across the distance of time in the first century, a group of Jewish followers of Jesus wrestle with the same reality you and I are wrestling with right now. They face difficult circumstances. They wrestle with doubt. They confronted disappointment in their life and in their faith. And they wondered if God really cared. If God really understood what they were going through. And the inspired and brilliant writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews takes just an island of refuge from his warnings. 
through this remarkable book we're looking at at Christ Community this year to give us a microburst of encouragement for your heart and mine, particularly a heart of disappointment and loneliness. Disappointment was setting their faith adrift. And they were beginning to believe that God had let them down. And when we believe God lets us down, we begin to let go of our faith. And so the brilliant and inspired writer of Hebrews, which I'd like you to turn to that text that we've heard read this morning, Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, gives you and me life for our soul. High octane air. Three encouragements for a disappointed heart. And the three encouragements follow the sequence of the brilliant literary scaffolding of this text. In verse 14, 15, and 16, and this is the flow of our exploration this morning. It is power-packed. In verse 14, we will see, first of all, that God says through the inspired writer of Hebrews that Jesus knows what you're going through. Jesus knows. And then right on the heels of that, in verse 15, the Hebrew writer will then say, that Jesus not only knows what you're going through, Jesus cares what you're going through. So he moves from Jesus knows to Jesus cares. And then in this brilliant crescendo in verse 16, he reminds us of one of the most important truths for your life and mine, and that is that Jesus is there for you, even in life's most agonizing struggles and disappointments. Jesus knows, Jesus cares, and Jesus is there for you. Look with me at verse 14, Jesus knows. Here in the text, in verse 14, I want to read it again. I'd like to highlight one particular phrase. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son, notice, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now, as we are going to see, if you've been in this journey, as we walk through Hebrews, the theme of Jesus' priestly role is going to be central. It's going to be a major theme, and we're going to unpack it in uh, the, the days and weeks ahead. So Jesus, the great high priest, this is the first time in Hebrews that the writer gives us this phrase. He's introduced the priest of Jesus, Jesus as the priest, but the great high priest. And the focus here is this phrase, who has passed through the heavens. Do you see that if you have your text open? Now, what the writer of Hebrews, remember we said earlier on that the Hebrew writer not only has a scholarly mind, he has a pastoral heart. And the scholarly mind of his Greek ability is really uh, on display here. Because what he does is he takes a phrase, he plucks it and puts it together, unique to him. And it is the phrase, who, passed, who has passed through the heavens. This is a literary device that connects all that has been said about the true and better Jesus before. On one side of this phrase is Jesus' divinity in chapter 1. Jesus' radiant divinity, his magnificent divinity. But notice he has passed through the heavens, that is the implication to earth, and that is Jesus' humanity in chapter 2 that's highlighted. So this little phrase, with brilliant artistry, the Hebrew writer captures the true and better Jesus in his divinity and in his humanity. He nestles it in, the language that is going to be so important for us to keep in mind as we go through this, is the priesthood of Jesus. Now, again, in Old Testament, these are Jewish readers. 
The Old Testament priesthood was important, but here Jesus, notice, is the Son of God. He is the great high priest. And here we have the statement of exclusivity of Jesus. Jesus is the only way. He is the great high priest. So imprinted in this text is the exclusivity of Jesus. In other words, as the high priest, he is in a unique and the only high priest. He's he's in a league himself. That's the idea. He's in the order of Aaron and so forth, but he's in a league by himself. Now, the emphasis of this particular text is not on Jesus' deity. It is on his humanity. And so as he takes this phrase and is passed through the heavens, the implication is to earth, he reminds us in this text that Jesus knows us. He breathed the same air we breathe. Jesus ate the same food we ate, basically. Maybe not Doritos, I don't know. He felt the joys and pains like we do. He knows exactly what's go- what you're going through. In other words, the text tells us that Jesus not only walked in our shoes, he took on our feet. He walked in our feet. He had feet, just like you and me. I don't know if you want to look at your feet, but he had feet, just like you and me. That's the idea. Now, why is this so important? Why the emphasis? Because Jesus is omniscient. That means as the Son of God, he knows everything. But not only in an objective propositional truth that's inexhaustible. What we must not miss in this text is, no, the experiential knowledge that is inexhaustible. That Jesus knows exactly what you're going through because he's walked in your feet. We often step back in Colossians 2, for example, and and Jesus has hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And yes, that's true. But the emphasis here is Jesus' personal knowledge of your and my frail humanity. He knows. Now, when I think of this, I think of learning about pregnancy. And, uh, you know, I had health class, like you had this, and I learned about, you know, the birds and bees and health and how all that works and human sexuality and pregnancy. So I thought I was quite an expert as a teenager uh, about how all this stuff works. And uh, so when Liz got pregnant, and uh, it took us a while in our marriage, um, I thought, hey, you know, I'm going to read up another book on pregnancy. And so I read all about it and Lamas stuff. And again, I've told you before, if you've been here a while, I was a terrible birth coach. I didn't do anything right. I was a disaster. But I thought I knew something about pregnancy. And I'd try to understand Liz when, you know, and again, especially as you get later on down this pregnancy, of course, I don't know this, but uh, you're miserable. Some of you ladies who have been pregnant know exactly, or are pregnant know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, imagine me going up to Liz, which I wouldn't do, or to one of you, ladies that have been pregnant or are pregnant or experienced that. So I know exactly what you feel. I'm Pastor Tom. I know you. You know, you would never do that as pastor. It's really stupid. I have no idea. I'm a guy, for goodness sakes. You have to be a woman to understand what it means to be pregnant. So the idea is another woman comes up to you, she's been pregnant or has a child, and you are pregnant or you have a child, and she can say, I know exactly what you're feeling, and you go, yes. And the knowledge she has allows her to truly what? To truly care. I don't really really know what it's like. I can't care. And that's the picture. What this writer is saying is that Jesus says, just like you would say if you had been pregnant, with another woman, been there, done that. This text, that's what it says. This text looks at your humanity and my frail humanity and says, Jesus says, 
been there, done that. In every respect. This is experience. But not just experience, it's distant. It just leads to the second powerful encouragement. Jesus not only knows what you're going through, he cares about what you're going through. Now notice in verse 15, this is very central to this text. For we, he says, for we, have, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, you see that, but one in who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, if you were to have a boring snow day and you wanted to look at the English uh, dictionary lexicon on your computer or a paper copy, you look up sympathize, and right after it, you would see a Greek word. You might not be able to read it, but English word sympathy comes from this word. And it's a compound word of Greek. Pretty interesting, huh? And it literally means what English is taken from the Greek text is to feel together with someone. To feel together. It's a compound word. It describes something really important. Because this text is saying that Jesus feels with us of our human weakness, our frailty. It can be physical frailty, like I'm on a cold. I'm sure Jesus had that. Emotional frailty, discouraged, loneliness, depression, disappointment. My music friends tell me a lot about something that intrigues me here, and I think this is what the text is saying. They tell me that there is this very real, sympathetic resonance in music. And they tell me if you take two pianos on a stage and you hit one note on one piano, the other piano without even touching the keys responds. There is a sympathetic resonance. Picture is every note you strike. A note of sadness, a note of joy, a note of pain. Jesus responds to you like a piano in resonance. Every weakness. See, sometimes I think we have this view of Jesus that is so off. Sometimes we think of Jesus like, He's kind of folding his arms up there, and, or I don't know if we say up there. It's kind of strange for me to say that. But. And we try to come to Jesus, and he's like the stern Jesus, distant, disinterested, condescending. And when we come to him, we have this idea that he looks at us like, what's the matter with you? Quit feeling that way. Would you get a grip? Would you grow up? But that's not the Jesus here. He is our great high priest. He feels together with us. His arms are open to you. His loving arms are open to you. He invites us to share our heartaches with him, our sorrows, our disappointments, our disbeliefs, our doubts with him. And Jesus looks into our eye and says, I know how you feel. It's painful, isn't it? I've been there. 
Prophet Isaiah looked down the corner of time and saw Yeshua Mashiach, the Messiah, Jesus, in Isaiah 53. Interesting, he describes Jesus, the Messiah. He says, Jesus is acquainted with grief. The word there in the Hebrew text is he knows it intimately. That's our Lord. Apostle Peter, who was really a bonehead, wasn't he, in many ways? A brilliant bonehead, but he's a bonehead, like me. I mean, he really blew it. Denied Jesus, good grief. Isn't it interesting that Peter, in his older age, writes this epistle and says, casting all your care upon him. Cast all your care upon Jesus. Why? Because he cares for you. Jesus is the greatest friend you and I will ever have. Not only now, but forever. Is it any wonder this great hymn we sang is such a mark of the church? What a friend we have in Jesus. Let me refresh you with some of the lyrics. What a friend we have in Jesus. All, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Now notice where the writer goes. I think he was in this text. Have we trials and temptations? Like, yeah. Is there trouble anywhere? Everywhere. We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows every weakness, our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Notice the emphasis in verse 15 of temptation. Temptation is a really strong thread here. Jesus never gave in to temptation, and the text is very clear. He never sinned, but he faced great temptation, much like you and I face. This week, today, this morning, you may be facing serious temptation. Your heart longs to cross over the boundaries God has for sexuality or to abuse power in your business or your work or your family or your friends. Temptation to gossip about somebody else, to harbor an unforgiving spirit, to worry, to buy into the lie that God does not really know what's going through your life. He doesn't really care. And if the evil one can stoke more and more disappointment in your heart, Disappointment with God. He knows disappointment is one of the most fertile grounds for a host of temptations to grow and thrive. So what temptations are you facing? All of us face them. Kids, perhaps you're being tempted to disobey your parents, to not honor that curfew, to watch a movie you know you shouldn't be watching. Some of us this morning are facing sexual temptation. Maybe a click of a mouse on a computer, and maybe an extended leisurely lunch with a colleague of the opposite sex. You may be facing the temptation to make a name for yourself, to be something. So you're working all the time like a workaholic. And maybe you are struggling with the temptation this morning to let go of your faith completely. Maybe this is the last gas morning in your heart. 
and you're ready to throw in the towel of faith. So have you taken the time to truly reflect on the truth of this text? Will you join me? When Jesus walked on the earth for three, 33 years, Jesus faced every temptation you and I face. Have you thought about it? Jesus must have been tempted to disobey his parents. He's pretty smart, you know. Maybe smarter than his parents. He must have felt the tug of sexual lust as a man. The pull of power, the desire to get even, the longing for fame. We know from the Gospels that Satan threw every arsenal in hell at him to stop his mission to save you and me and the world. And in chapter 5, verses 7 through 8 of Hebrews here, you have a glimpse, we have a glimpse of the Garden of Gethsemane, one of the greatest moments of temptation where he sweat drops of blood that he would abandon the mission of the cross. Jesus wrestled with doubt and disappointment with his Father's will. It's right in, in between the lines, his heart. His heart was broken. Yet God's will for him was to go through suffering on a rugged road of obedience. Sometimes I think, and maybe it's just my demented thinking, I don't know. Sometimes I think because Jesus, we think Jesus was, the, was sinless, and he was, and the Son of God, the most sinless person to ever grace this sin-ravaged planet, the temptation somehow was easier for Jesus. But C.S. Lewis, the Oxford writer, shatters this convenient illusion. And this is what he says. It's a little longer quote, but I want to read it because it's so rich. He says, no man knows how bad he is <laughs> till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a win by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would be like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us, notice, until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. Jesus knows what temptation you're facing. He's faced it with the most hellish power imaginable against him. Jesus knows and deeply cares about the struggles and temptations you are facing including that aching feeling that God has let you down in life. This, my friends, is one of the most perilous temptations in our life. Is to buy into the lie of the evil one himself that God has let you down. He doesn't know what you're going through. He doesn't care, and he's not there for you. And when we are tempted to let go of our faith, underneath that, underneath that, is that we are buying into the lie that God has let us down. It's like a school of piranhas, temptation, feed on disappointment. Just feed on it in their frenzy. 
Temptation hits us strong, with strong punch when we are isolated. And this is another reason why we must be tethered to each other in local church community. This is going to be a theme of Hebrews. Not only tethered to Jesus, but tethered to one another. For in those quiet moments, you know what that's like. I know what that's like. In a hotel room or wherever I'm alone, when the tempter's voice comes to me, when I'm tired, weary, distracted, and says, you really can't trust God with your life. You really deserve this. You really deserve this pleasure. The tempter comes to us like he did to Adam and Eve. Same song, same dance. He basically says, if you look back in Genesis, God is holding out on you, Eve. And Adam, God is not really good. God doesn't really care. He doesn't know what you're going through. Or he would let you eat the tree of this particular tree. Now hear me carefully. When Satan is speaking lies into our ears, we so need other brothers and sisters in Christ to speak truth to our hearts. Here in Hebrews chapter 4, we hear the completely trustworthy word of God with crystal clear clarity. Jesus, the great high priest who passed through the heavens, knows what you are going through. He cares about what you're going through. If Jesus really didn't care, friends, if Jesus really wasn't there for you, he wouldn't have come to this sin-ravaged planet. He wouldn't have gone to that cross. He wouldn't have raised from the dead. He wouldn't have sent the Holy Spirit to be with you and dwell in you. The tempter may be whispering something else in your ear this morning. It may be something you've been listening to all your life that is a lie. God's holy written word says Jesus is there for you. He knows you. He cares for you like no one else. That is bedrock truth. Notice how the writer builds in a crescendo in verse 16. And that is Jesus knows, he cares, but he's there for you. And notice the text. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you notice the connection if you've been following this series where this primary metaphor of drifting, all of us struggle with drifting, now is answered in this antidote How do we avoid drifting from our faith? The answer, the antidote is here in verse 16. In order not to drift, we must draw near to Jesus the high priest. And notice the language here is just filled with Old Testament imagery. These are Jewish followers of Jesus. And the imagery in verse 16 is Yom Kippur. That in Hebrew means the Day of Atonement. In the Old Testament, one day of the year, if you remember, the high priest went into the holy of holy place where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt under the mercy seat, his manifest presence. One day out of the year, the high priest went in and he had to do all kinds of cleansing and blood sacrifices to be in the holy presence of God. And he went through the curtain. And the picture here is that curtain is no more. The access to the presence of God, the very presence of God is now open. If you remember when Jesus died on the cross, when he said it was a finish, when he atoned for your sin and mine, the veil in the temple split. And the picture here is that now we have access to the most holy presence of God. 
And in the picture is Jesus as the great high priest who didn't die for his sin. He had no sin, but he died for your sin and mine. Now allows us not only to come into the holy place, he reaches his hand and he brings us in with him. He's there for you and me. Notice the text. The only time it's framed this way. When we think of a, a, a throne, what do we think of? We think of a regal power. Notice the phrase, the throne of grace. What I find in verse 16, and I'd encourage you to memorize this verse and hold it around your heart. But what I find in verse 16 is what I call Christ's comprehensive care package for you. Notice the brilliant arrangement and sequence of three words. Jesus is there for you. How do we know this? What does it look like? Notice how the text progresses. Mercy, grace, and help. Do you see that? Mercy means God withholding something we deserve in a negative way, like because of our sin, we deserve punishment. But grace, notice finding grace, grace means that God gives us something we can never earn as a gift. But notice how it builds from mercy to grace to help. In fact, this word help, to find help in time of need, is very rare in the Bible. It's the unusual word for it. What the writer is doing here is he's connecting us to Jesus' words in Mark chapter 9. There's only two places this word is used. One is of of a ship that is shipwrecked in Acts, and it's from classical Greek. It's a picture of when you are desperate, when there's nobody else to go to, when someone comes to rescue, when you're in desperate straits, this is the word for help. You can't rescue yourself. But the allusion here of this word is right back to Mark chapter 9, verse 24. And in that text, Jesus is about to heal a child. And the father comes to Jesus and is wrestling with believing that Jesus can do it. And in the text, Jesus uses this word in this guy's voice. He says, Lord, Lord, I believe. What? Help me. Same word. Help me in my unbelief. The theme, the context of Hebrews is this drifting of unbelief. And the text guides us to say, perhaps the greatest help you and I need is to keep believing, to hold us close, lest we drift away. The Hebrew writer is saying, don't drift. Draw near. Jesus is there for you. He will never leave you. Draw near to him in times of pain, in times of sorrow, in times of unbelief. When you're at the edge of your rope, we say, Lord, help me in my unbelief. Help me stay tethered. Don't drift away in disappointment. Draw near to him. So where's your heart this morning? Where's my heart? Is your heart adrift on the waves of disappointment? Will you take them and lay them at the cross? And if you're here today, you're not a person of Christian faith yet. Can I just say I'm glad you're here? One of the things I think many of us wrestle with not only after we've trusted Christ before as we look at him. One of the greatest barriers of faith for many of us in becoming a Christian is we have a disappointment in God. But I don't think that has to be a barrier. I think it's a door of opportunity if you will walk through it. Because the Hebrew writer addresses 
some misconceptions about our faith. And he gives us two truths that help us work through disappointment with God. I'm going to highlight them briefly. We'll pick up more of these later. First is this. We expect God to solve our problems, but God enters them instead. We expect most of us, wherever we are on our faith journey, God is sort of this abracadabra God. I snap my fingers, shazam, and God solves my problems, or he doesn't exist, or he doesn't care. The Bible doesn't teach that. The God of Scripture tells us God cares, but he enters into our problem, the greatest problem we have, and that's sin and separation from God. He solves that on the cross. When Jesus said it was finished, he meant it. Our God has wounds. He knows what we are going through, what you are going through. He knows your suffering, your loss, your discouragement, your pain, and he enters into it. And he says to you, been there, done that, I'm with you. Second truth this text screams out is this. We expect God to intervene now, but he has a very different time frame. Many of us, again, struggle with this sort of cosmic vending machine view of God. We put a token of prayer in, we cry out to God, we expect him to zap it and do it now. Take away our pain, deal with the situation. But God has a different time frame. Philip Yancey brilliantly says this. He says, the Bible never belittles human disappointment. I like that. But it does add one key word, temporary. Temporary. What we feel now, we will not always feel. Did you hear that? Do you believe it? Out of disappointment, or our disappointment is itself a sign, and aching a hunger for something better, and faith is at the end a kind of homesickness. For a home we have never visited, but have never once stopped longing, longing for C.S. Lewis reminded us that the pain now is part of the happiness later. That's the deal. And the Hebrew writer is looking to the end of the story in Revelation 21, in the new heavens and new earth, when there'll be no more pain, suffering, or crying. And that means the pain and suffering of disappointment in your life and loss. One day that will be gone because Jesus said it's finished on the cross. I don't know where your heart is this morning. Well, let me just challenge you, the disappointment with God and with others is often faith's surprising backdoor to deeper intimacy with Jesus. Are you drifting away from him on the waves of disappointment? Or are you drawing near to him? Will you stop listening to the lies of the evil one? Will you draw near to him? The one who knows you from little toe to your ears and everything in between and who loves you with an everlasting love and who's there for you when you need it. Let us joyfully, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. Heavenly Father, we are weak. We are frail. Doubts and disappointments and disbelief often cloud my perspective, our perspective. Our hearts are often wounded with disappointment in others, in you and ourselves. Lord, how we need you. How we need you. 
every hour we need you. Where sin runs deep, your grace is more. Where grace is found is where you are.